the sin of racism or ethnic superiority is not a problem of the past. It's a problem that takes place any time we root our identity and our culture, our race, our ethnicity, rather than in the grace of God. So let's not assume just because we've made progress on racial strife that we will not have to deal with racism again. Cultural superiority and ethnic pride has been with us since the beginning and it will continue with us until Jesus comes back. The temptation of the human heart is always to place our identity not in what Christ alone has done for us, but in what we have done and what makes us better than others. And we can and often do that by looking to our culture. I think we as a church are probably fluent enough in the gospel never to say that you need to adopt a specific cultural practice in order to become a Christian. But I wonder, are there any ways that you think someone needs to become culturally like you to be viewed as a faithful Christian? Are there any things that you assume about our practices, our beliefs, our assumptions of the way we do things that lead you to think someone's not a faithful Christian if they don't do it like us? It's not rooted in the Bible, but just rooted in our history. It's not rooted in what the gospel says about how we ought to live together as a community, but it's just rooted in the way things have always been done. Perhaps that's something like how reserved you are in worship or how expressive you are in worship. Uh, Perhaps that has to do with uh, whether you stand still or raise your hands. Perhaps that has to do with whether or not you drink alcohol. Uh, Perhaps that has to do with whether a faithful preacher tells lots of stories or no stories at all. Maybe it's taking notes or not taking notes to be fully present. There's all sorts of ways we can make cultural assumptions about what it looks like to be faithful. I just wonder, is there anything that you have assumed about what it looks like to be a faithful Christian that's rooted not in the Bible, not in the gospel, but in our culture? When we do this, we threaten the unity of the church. And we threaten the sufficiency of the gospel. So we can threaten the unity of the church by insisting someone be culturally like us to be saved, or even smaller than that, insisting they be like us to be viewed as faithful. And so we can fight for gospel unity. Look with me at how these men fought for gospel unity in verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them for a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who have turned to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generation, Moses has been read in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Here we see that we can fight for unity by fighting for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel. We can fight for unity by fighting for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel. Now after hearing the initial view of the Pharisees, the apostles and elders gather for some time debating one another. And after much debate had taken place, Peter finally stands up and addresses all who are gathered. And in his speech, he reminds them that God had told him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. God had commanded him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he points out that God, knowing their heart, gave them the Holy Spirit before they were circumcised. Before any cultural changes had taken place, God had given them the Spirit. And then God made no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but he cleansed all of them by faith. Implicitly, what he's beginning to show us is that circumcision is no longer the sign of the covenant. Now baptism is. Baptism is what marks you out as someone who has trusted Christ and come to belong to the people of God. And so Peter then, speaking on behalf of all the Jews, says that they were not able to keep the moral aspects of the law, let alone the ceremonial aspects. So it's foolish for them to try to add this burden to the Gentiles also. Instead, he reminds us, we are saved by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not saved by grace plus Judaism. Not saved by grace plus works. But saved by grace alone. Of course, we still see these false formulas today. Catholics believe in Jesus plus the keeping of the sacraments in order to be saved. Others teach that it's Jesus plus good works or morality that will gain you salvation. Other cults will teach you it's Jesus plus something else. But anything that attempts to supplant the complete sufficiency of Christ, says Jesus plus anything, amounts to heresy and a false gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We totally lose it. We believe that we will be saved by grace through the Lord Jesus, full stop. Nothing else. So after hearing all this, the assembly grows silent. It seems they know the debate's over. It's been settled. And Paul and Barnabas then go on to recount then what God had done through their signs and works among the Gentiles. Probably reminding them, we've not actually told any of them that they need to be circumcised or they need to follow the law of Moses. But God has still performed signs and wonders as we've done this, implicitly showing how God has authenticated this method. God has accepted the Gentiles without them becoming Jewish. 
And so after this, James then, the lead elder and half-brother of Jesus, stands up and says that the experience of Peter is consistent with the Scriptures. And so he quotes one Scripture in particular, Amos 9, 11 through 12. And says, Amos 9 promised that God would rebuild the house of David and he would do so from the remnant of mankind, including Gentiles. God has always been a God of all the nations. And God's plan from all the way back was always to make a people for himself, including both Jew and Gentile. Therefore, James's judgment is the Gentiles should not be further troubled by having to become Jewish in order to become Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that the Gentile Christians need to do when they become Christians. He lists four things we'll consider in a minute. But for now, it's sufficient to say that from James's, uh, from James's perspective, he's concluded, based on Peter's testimony, salvation is by grace alone, not anything else. From Paul and Barnabas' testimony, that God has approved this mission to the Gentiles and Gentiles becoming Christians without becoming Jewish. And he concludes from the scriptures that this was always God's plan. Therefore, they should let the Gentiles become Christians as Gentiles without forcing them to become Jewish. This fight is a fight for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel. If they're saved by grace, they can't add culture. If they're united in the gospel, they can't assume a shared culture. And from beginning to end, this is a work that God has been doing to bring two formerly opposed enemies into one new people. I want you to notice that this fight for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel likely came at great cost to these men. And Paul, in all likelihood, recounting the events leading just up to this meeting in Jerusalem, tells how in Galatians 2.12, certain men came from James to Antioch, likely referring to the same certain men who came from Judea. Now we'll see momentarily in verse 24 that these men did not receive their teaching from James. They weren't authorized by James. Yet, if these really are the same men, they were close enough to James to say, hey, he's the guy backing us. But now, these folks who claim association with James, James is disavowing. He's fighting for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel, in all likelihood costing him, or it could have cost him, relationship with these people who said they were representing him. And further, Paul goes on to report in Galatians that Peter began to act like a hypocrite because he feared these men. Now, you only fear something when you have something to lose. We don't know what Peter had to lose. It could have been relationship with these men as well. It could have been his reputation. Or it could have been something else. But now, instead of continuing in fear, Peter is also boldly standing up for the Gentiles. Finally, in all likelihood, given Peter's disposition in Acts 10, preferring Jewish diet and customs, and James's association with these men who are insisting on Jewish customs, it may have even been the case that Peter and James's preference was for the Gentiles to become culturally Jewish. They would have said, this would be much easier if we could all just be Jewish. Yet again, they're recognizing that this would undermine the sufficiency and the centrality of the gospel for the church. So whatever it costs them, they fight 
for the gospel. Whether they lose relationship, whether they lose their reputation, whether they have to give up on their preferences, we can't exactly know what they gave up. We can't exactly know what it cost them, but it did cost them something. And it was a cost worth fighting for, both to protect the gospel and to protect the unity of the church. This was a fight for gospel unity. So I want to ask you, are you willing to fight for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel? Even if it were to cost you relationships or preference. Are you so committed to the gospel that if someone wanted to make a second or third tier issue a thing of first importance, that you would be willing to lose the relationship to keep the gospel central? Someone were to start to abandon the gospel and lead others astray. Would you stay so committed to the gospel you'd be willing to lose that relationship for that sake? Or if Peter and James really seem to prefer their Jewish culture as it looks like, would you similarly be willing to give up on your preferences for the sake of preserving unity in the gospel? Surrendering your preferences regarding music style, dress, the way we talk, any number of things in order to preserve unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can fight for unity by fighting for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel. But what plan do they offer in order to continue fighting this fight? Look with me in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles and Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Here's the plan for gospel unity. We can keep the gospel central by allowing for cultural flexibility and by repenting from cultural idolatry. We can keep the gospel central by allowing for cultural flexibility and by repenting of cultural idolatry. So in response to James's exhortation, it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, and the whole church to send a few representatives to go back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to explain a letter containing their final judgment. 
And then we get to hear what the letter says. It calls the church in Antioch brothers. They're restoring this church's dignity, counting them brothers and sisters in Christ. It recognizes that those who had come from them caused them trouble. They're apologizing, saddened over the experience they've had. But now, in contrast to the trouble, this church has come to one accord. The judgment they're about to provide was unanimous. And they want to make known what they've concluded through Paul and Barnabas, who they consider beloved, recognizing that they had risked their lives for Jesus. And unlike the men who came from James, unauthorized to say what they say, they now send Judas and Silas to explain the letter in person as well, to make sure they know this is not just Paul and Barnabas who are already fighting for them. This is the judgment of the whole church of Jerusalem. The tone of this letter is one that exudes love and affection for the predominantly Gentile church in Antioch, welcoming and embracing them as a part of the family of Christ. And the letter then goes on to detail, specifically the final judgment regarding circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law. But before we consider that final judgment, let's consider how they respond. The text tells us they rejoiced. Whatever the news was, whatever the judgment was, they counted it good news. It was an encouragement to them. And then Judas and Silas encourage and strengthen this church. And after they spent a long time with them, they're sent off in peace as Paul and Barnabas continue to teach and preach the gospel in Antioch as they had always been doing. Joy, peace, and unity is the result of the judgment that took place in Jerusalem. Joy, peace, and unity is the result of this plan to keep the gospel central. So what was the plan they came up with? Well, first look back at verse 28. They say it had seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. In other words, what they're suggesting here is we're going to allow cultural flexibility. You don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You don't have to adopt Jewish cultural practices and the law of Moses in order to be saved. Yet, they do lay upon them four requirements. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Abstain from blood. Abstain from what has been strangled. And abstain from sexual immorality. Now there's a significant debate among scholars about why James and the Church of Jerusalem would give these four commands, these four prohibitions. Some suggest that the Gentiles are to abstain from these four particular matters out of respect for Jewish sensibilities. In other words, these were no longer a condition to be saved, but this was a condition to preserve peace in the church. Please abide by these Jewish cultural practices so that Jewish Christians will be okay. However, this to me seems very unlikely for two reasons. One is one of the things they're called to abstain from is to abstain from sexual immorality, which is not a uniquely Jewish preference. This is something Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, their great champion, will insist upon again and again and again. Second, notice what's not on the list. Circumcision, the main thing that's becoming a dividing point between Jews and Gentiles. If they're trying to look at the things that are going to be a, a major offense to the Jews, you would think they'd include the main thing that had caused this division in the first place. But they don't. Instead, as many New Testament scholars point out, each item in this decree should be taken as 
uh, referring to four different activities that were known or believed to be transpired in pagan temples. In other words, they're not calling Gentiles to respect especially significant Jewish cultural practices. Otherwise, again, circumcision would have been on the list. Rather, they're calling these Gentiles to completely abandon everything associated with their former idolatry. Although it would have been common in their culture to worship using these practices, they're saying if you're going to become a Christian, you have to abandon all of it. Which is likely then why these Gentiles rejoice so easily at receiving this letter. In coming to Christ, they were already prepared to abandon their former idolatry, even though it would require a significant cost to them culturally. And so the big picture then is that they don't have to become Jewish, but they do have to repent of any aspect of their culture that comes into conflict with the gospel. And if Christianity is not the product of any one culture, but is actually the transcultural truth of God, then we would expect that at times the gospel will be both reflected in every culture and at times will contradict and offend every human culture. In other words, by God's common grace, every culture will have aspects that actually show the goodness and grace of God. But it will also at other times have aspects that are wicked, idolatrous, and come into conflict with the gospel. And actually sometimes, the very same cultural values and practices that reflect the gospel are the ones that get taken to an extreme and come into conflict with the gospel. Take for example... The individualism that is so valued, especially among whites in America. On the one hand, there is something biblical about recognizing people as individuals. God made all people in his image as individuals. We uniquely reflect and represent God in that way. Further, every individual must be born again through repentance and faith. You cannot be saved by growing up in a Christian family. You cannot be saved simply by coming to church. As an individual, you must decide, I'm going to turn from my sin and trust Jesus. Kids, teens growing up here, listen, you are not a Christian just because you've come to church all your life. You're not a Christian just because your parents claim Christ. If you want to be a Christian, you have to claim Jesus for yourself. You have to turn from your sin and trust that his life, death, and resurrection is a sufficient payment for your sin. And so in this way, individualism does have biblical precedent. But on the other hand, individualism in our culture has also become idolatrous. Instead of seeing our identity as being given by God and our God-given meaning and purpose as something we need to conform to, Instead, we see the, raw, the world as the raw material that we get to make meaning out of. In other words, we determine our identity, we live for our own desires and pleasures, and we look to others to validate that identity regardless of what it costs them. And this cannot be contrasted greatly enough with the more community-oriented cultures around the world, and especially among minority cultures in America, where every decision is not made of made in light of what's best for me, but where every decision's made in light of what's best for my friends and family, which I know for even us. That's a counterintuitive question. How many of us make decisions with the question, what's best for my friends and family in mind? Not me. I doubt many of us do. 
Many of us have been shaped by the radical individualism that we find in our country. We make decisions out of what's best for me. But doesn't a decision out of what's best for others have a clear gospel principle? As Philippians would tell us, consider the interests of others as more significant than yourselves. Truly, individualism is found in the Bible. There's good reason to support treating people as individuals. Yet clearly, it's also become idolatrous as it comes into conflict with the very ways the gospel would call us to live differently. So I hope you can see the point. The good news of Christianity is that we don't have to abandon our culture and adopt a whole new culture in order to become Christians. But we do have to repent of any of our culture's unique idolatries. So if you're not a Christian, I wonder if some of your objections to Christianity are actually a result of the gospel coming into conflict with your culture. I invite you to think right now, why do you reject Christianity? Why are you objecting to it? Is that a uniquely Western objection? Or could you say with confidence that people from Africa or South America or Asia would share that objection? Is it possible that the gospel is just correcting one aspect of your culture that's not in step with the way God designed the world? The good news is that to become a Christian, unlike what other religions would tell you, you don't have to adopt a new diet. You don't have to learn a new language. It's a good thing the Bible's been translated into English. You don't need to learn Arabic as Muslims would teach you. You don't need to adopt a certain set of dress. You don't have to abandon everything about your culture. You simply need to repent of your sin, turn away from it, and trust Jesus. Looking to his life, death, and resurrection as a sufficient payment for your sin. He lived a perfect life, earning the righteousness you owe to God. He died a substitutionary death on the cross, paying the penalty to God you deserve for your sin. And he rose from the dead so that you too could be delivered from the power of sin and death. And he is coming back again to judge the world and to free all his people from the presence of sin and brokenness forevermore. When you really grasp the grace of what God has done for you. It changes you from the inside out. You no longer have to look to yourself and to your performance or to your culture or to anything else to demonstrate how you're valuable and worthy and acceptable because Christ has already loved you while you were a sinner, while you were his enemy. He loved you enough to die for you. And when you really get that, It transforms your heart from the inside out so that you actually begin to walk in a different way, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or as Paul would say, you're finally free to live like a Jew among Jews and live like a Greek among Greeks because what's most important to you is no longer proving how you're better than everyone else. What's most important is demonstrating the goodness and grace of Jesus. So if you'd like to learn more about what this looks like, please come talk with me after the service. I'd love to tell you more about how you can come to Jesus. Now, I should be clear that it is unavoidable that our church will have a culture. We will have a shared set of assumptions, beliefs, values, behaviors, and customs. And sometimes 
that will mean our culture will come into conflict with other cultures. And when our culture is based upon the gospel, we don't want to change at all. Here's what I mean. Our commitment to individualism in America often results in consumerism, which will come into conflict as people come to our church and say, I'm going to take, but I'm not going to give. It's all about my worship preferences, my preaching style preferences, my preferences regarding kids ministry. Go down the list of all the things I want a church to be like. There's not room for that in the gospel. I have zero interest in us ever catering to that kind of consumerism. Because the call of the gospel reminds us that Jesus did not consider his own interests, but considered ours when he went to the cross. And so instead of catering to consumerism, we want to call people to be not consumers, but contributors. Considering the interests and preference of others as more significant than our own. That's a part of the call to repent of our cultural idolatries. But sometimes, as we rub up against a different culture, we'll realize the difference is not because we're basing our culture on the gospel or the Bible, but simply because of the way we've always done things. Or simply a part of a culture we inherited and brought to the table. And it's on those things we want to remove. We want to be as flexible as possible so that we don't put up any barriers to the gospel besides the gospel itself. This is why so many of our values as a church revolve around the gospel. We value being gospel-centered, meaning we aim to apply God's grace in Christ to all of life. The first step to making sure the only barrier to the gospel is the gospel itself is knowing the gospel. If we don't know what the gospel is, we can't make sure that's the only barrier. The second step is thinking through how the gospel would shape the culture of a community so that we can be preserving that in our life together. But we also value being a hospitable community. We aim to welcome others into our community corporately and into our lives personally as Christ has welcomed us. Again, Jesus welcomed us into his family while we were his enemies by considering our interests more important than his own when he went to the cross. And so if we're going to be hospitable to all people, we need to continue to consider not how our preferences might be satisfied, but by considering the interests of others, especially those who are different than us. Very practically, we might ask, How would someone who is new or different than me experience our church, our community, our worship, our small groups, and so on as a way to welcome people who are different than us? Finally, we value being a reconciled community. We aim to demonstrate that our community is united because of Christ across every barrier that could divide us. Now, this is only possible if we love Jesus more than anything that could divide us. This is only possible if we love Jesus more than our differences. This is, and this is only possible when we keep the gospel central because it is not our common interests, it's not our musical preferences, our political convictions, our age, ethnicity, nationality, financial status, education, or stage of life that unites us. There are some Christians in some churches that want to be united about Jesus plus one of those things. We are not one of them. What unites us is our common faith in Jesus Christ, who has made us into one body made up of many members through the cross and resurrection. 
Listen, all of these things flow from a commitment to the gospel. So I'll ask you again, what aspects of your or our culture may have become idols that we need to repent of in view of the grace of our Lord Jesus for the sake of those who are different than us? We made an idol out of individualism. We made idols out of the way we dress or the way we talk or the way we sing. Is there something else in our culture that you've made an idol of? If we are going to be united in the gospel, we need to repent of. Northwood, let's fight for the gospel. And let's fight for unity as we keep the gospel central by allowing for cultural flexibility and by repenting from cultural idolatries. This is the beauty of the gospel. It brings together people from all times and all places. It brings together culturally different people and makes us one in Jesus. This is in part what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we come to this table together, one of the things we are celebrating is the fact that Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, made this room of people into one family in Christ. No matter our differences, no matter our different backgrounds, no matter our age, no matter our gender, no matter what we learn, how educated we are, no matter how much money we make, we are united in Christ by his blood, made into one family. Now take a moment. I I know this will be weird. We've done this once before. But look around right now. Behind you, side of you. These are the people, if we have repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus, God has united together as one for all our differences. And so we take the bread together, remembering That it is by his body being given on our behalf that we were made into one body. And as we take the cup together, we remember that it is by his blood being shed on the cross that we were purified and cleansed, made into one pure and lovely bride. We do all this month after month, year after year, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Anticipating that great day When Jesus comes back and we share a different kind of feast, a celebration among people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, celebrating the fact that Jesus died in our place and came back to make us his. But Paul also warns us, and whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty considering the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person then examine himself And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so before we come to the table together, we want to take a moment to examine ourselves. First, to examine ourselves to see if we are in Christ. This is a family meal for those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. So if you've not done that, this meal is not for you. And we'd ask you to remain in your seat and instead consider all that Jesus has accomplished for you through his life and death and resurrection. When he died, he purchased forgiveness. He purchased love. He purchased a new family for you.
consider that. Second, examine your relationships within the body of Christ. One of the core concerns that would lead Paul to say the church in Corinth was taking this in an unworthy manner was the divisions that ran through the church. And so if there are any broken relationships you have, especially within brothers or sisters in Christ in this church family, and take this time to reflect on what Christ did to forgive you. Reflect on the depth of your debt owed to Him and allow that to lead your heart to pursue reconciliation with those whom you're withholding forgiveness. And third, examine yourself for unrepentant sin. You need to remember that we all come to Jesus as sinners by His grace. And so we come to this table by His grace as well. That were not for His grace, none of us would come. And so if you have sinned between the last time you've taken communion, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about right now is considering, is there anything in your life that you're holding on to more important than Jesus? And if you have, if you are, do business with the Lord right now. Surrender that to Him. If you'll let it go, come to the table for a fresh experience of His grace because His grace is sufficient for you. But if none of this prompts particular reflection, then use this time before we come to the table to simply reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word today. Perhaps these questions will help. Where are you tempted to insist someone must become culturally like you to be viewed as a faithful Christian? Are you willing to fight for the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel, even at cost to your relationships or your preferences? What aspects of your culture may have become idols that you need to repent of in view of the grace of our Lord Jesus? Let's take some time to examine ourselves and reflect on God's word.